I'm Esko Falman. This is my quest for self-knowledge, my meta quest. Today, I am diving into magical thinking with Matt Hudson. Magical thinking is not just irrational beliefs held by primitive peoples in faraway countries. It is something that we're all subject to. Matt Hudson wrote an awesome book called The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking. I read it a couple months back and I reached out to him and I'm super stoked to, to bring him here to you today. We had an awesome conversation about magical thinking and I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy it. Matt is a science journalist. He was the news editor of Psychology Today. He's also written for Newsweek, Wired, The Atlantic, The Economist, Science, Business Week, The New York Times Magazine, Discover, Scientific American, Popular Mechanics, New Scientist, Technology Review, Salon, Slate, HBR, many, many high-profile magazines. Uh, he also holds a bachelor's in cognitive neuroscience from Brown University and an MS in science writing from MIT. Before we dive into it, just a quick thank you to the channel sponsor, which is Crypto.com, the provider of these metal debit cards that you can load with regular money or cryptocurrencies. You can also get 2% cashback on all your purchases and $50 for free for you and for me. Just follow the link in the show notes. Without further ado, I bring you Matt Hudson. Matt, welcome on the show. Thanks for having me. No, I'm really grateful. There's really nothing that beats reading an awesome book and then actually being able to get a hold of the author of that book. And, well, uh, it's by, I'm glad to talk about it. You know. All right, excellent. I mean, it's been a few years since you published The uh, Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, but I think it's, uh, it's evergreen. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, so the book came out in 2012, but uh, magical thinking is something that is part of human nature. So it's been with us for as long as humanity uh, has been around, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. Right, right. I mean, when I read your book, I had just read, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with David McCraney. He wrote a book um, called no, I don't You know. Are Not So Smart. Okay. Okay, and it, and it deals with many of the, the same cognitive biases and stuff that, that you also mentioned in your book, but his book is very, I mean, I don't want to insult him here, but it's very negatively defined in, in a uh, sense, whereas you're more, you're dabbling into accepting that this is how we are. To some degree, yes. Um, because I, so I became an atheist when I was about 10. And, uh, and at that point That's I perfect. was very, yeah, so I, and I became, at that point, I became very negative about uh, religion and, and magical thinking. Um, I'd grown up going to church, uh, like Presbyterian church every week, uh, and then I decided that it just didn't make any sense to me. And so then I started wondering, why does everyone else believe in this stuff? Um, and I started thinking, well, everyone else is, is stupid or ignorant or you know, these are flaws in thinking that we just need to uh, somehow um, squash. So I had a very negative attitude. Uh, but then researching this book many years after that, uh, I started to see some positive effects of magical thinking. So it's not all bad. Um, although there are a lot of pitfalls and, and magical thinking and superstition and irrationality can definitely get us into trouble a lot of the time. Um, I did start to see some silver linings. Right, right. I mean, one of the major takeaways for me um, entering this rabbit hole 
on a more general level was that this is not just something that that you and I can we can we can't just do a lot of reading and then we're above it. Right? I mean, it, it applies right. to everyone. I love the example you gave with um, Richard Dawkins. Um, um, was it was it an old building or some letter yeah. that Darwin sent or some, something that he was really sentimental about? And, and the the only quality really was that it, it used to belong to to someone. Right. Yeah, I think it was like an archives or a natural history museum oh, or something yes. in England. Right. Um, and then he found maybe it was a, a bird or some uh, specimen that Darwin had collected. And he's holding <laughs> in his hands. He's like, wow, this is the very thing that Darwin held in his hands. As if there was some sort of like magical connection just by touching something that someone else who's smart had also touched. Right. I mean, I mean, I, that's actually one of the things I really want to get into. I, I mean, I mean, I'm certainly not beyond that. I mean, I remember when I was 20 or so, I was very obsessed with um, old Norse culture and all the, you know, the whole uh, Norse um, gallery of gods and all that stuff. And a friend of mine went and and um, saw this old rune stone. I think it was the, it's about 1500 years old. And because I had looked into the runes and all that stuff, I was actually able to read and understand what this runestone said, oh, wow. which was just a mind-blowing experience. Right? It was 1,500 years ago, someone uh, erected this this stone, and I was able to actually understand, why, I mean, maybe not fully, but more or less comprehend why they did so, what they, what they mm. said so. But, but again, it's magical thinking right there, isn't it? Well, I would, I don't know. I, I think that makes uh, more sense because that's sort of like they wrote something and then you're reading it. So you're actually understanding the thoughts in their heads. Um, right. But, but, so but I am, get, a I'm sorry, please. Yeah. So it's sort of like a communication through language. And, and so that's kind of cool that they can record what they're thinking and then you can sort of extract that. Um, but if you were to like hold something that they held and think that just holding it, like being in contact with it, um, gave you some sort of mad, some special connection or, or powers or, or something like that, I think that would be magical thinking. I, I'm pretty sure I've had some thoughts along those okay. lines when I was 20. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But so, but so just an example from your book again, this whole, I mean, most people, have an easy time throwing darts at a photo of Hitler and, and hitting mm. him, right? But at the same time, almost no people are comfortable burning a photo of their mom, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the, uh, the laws of magical thinking. So the book is organized as seven laws of magical thinking that are basically seven laws of magic that everyone believes in, at least subconsciously. Uh, and one of the laws of magic is uh, objects have, uh, sorry, symbols have power. Uh, and so one symbols include like words or, or numbers, uh, or pictures or ritualistic, ritualistic acts, uh, things like that. So pictures, for instance, there's some research where they had people throwing darts, um, at pictures of babies and, and Hitler and things like that. And their, their aim was just a little bit worse when it was a baby. Um, as if they subconsciously thought that they were throwing an, a dart at an actual baby. So even if you rationally know that a symbol is just a symbol, um, it still feels like you are affecting not just the symbol, but the thing that it represents. And so that's the power behind uh, like things like voodoo dolls um, or, or our many people's natural aversion to burning flags. 
um, which is also, you know, could be seen as a kind of like uh, voodoo magical thinking. Right, right. Okay, so what would you say are some of the most, I mean, you sort of in the book, you, you ultimately embrace some of these um, <laughs> magical beliefs that we all have, but, but what would you say are some of the ones that are worth combating or keeping in check at least? Um, let's see. So one of the big ones is everything happens for a reason. And so that there is an upside to it um, in that. Uh, so there's some research showing that it can bring, it can add, it increase meaning in life. So if something terrible happens to you and then you see it as part of a loving God's plan or somehow meant to be, then you start looking for a silver lining. And so there's some research showing that people after traumatic incidents, um, they can turn it around and uh, they see more post-traumatic growth, uh, better mental health, better emotional health, better relationships with other people if they see it as meant to be and look for that silver lining and basically create the silver lining mentally for themselves. But the downside of thinking that everything happens for a reason, or one of the downsides is uh, sort of fatalism. Um, so it can lead to uh, kind of depression and depressive thinking, where you, if something bad happens to you, you might say, oh, well, this is just meant to be. This is just like my, you know, I'm not cut out for this. Uh, you know, the world has it against me. I'm not even going to try. Um, it can also lead to, um, so belief in karma, for instance, is one aspect of it. The plus side of a belief in karma is it might motivate you to be a good person because then you want, you expect good things to, to happen in, in return. But it can also lead to blaming the victim. So if something bad happens to you or to, or to someone else, then you think, oh, well, that must be a bad person. Yeah. Um, so it leads to, for instance, you can see that in, in um, trials of like rape, for instance, like, oh, she, she was asking for it. Like, oh, something bad happened to this person, to this victim. Uh, therefore, the, vic the victim must be a bad person to bring it on himself or herself. Right. They um, did so something. Yeah. We just don't know what it is, but they had it yeah. coming in some sense, right? Yeah. Cosmic justice, right? Yeah. Okay. So, right. So what, what are some examples of more benign or beneficial, um, even, magical beliefs? Well, let's see. So the, the two main benefits of magical thinking, when there are benefits, are uh, the one I mentioned, the increase in, in meaning in life. And the other one is an increase in sense of control. Um, right. So certain things like uh, relying on symbols or relying on acts like crossing your fingers or wearing a lucky T-shirt or that sort of thing um, can make you feel more lucky and give you a greater sense of control, which can increase your actual control. Right. Uh, so there's one study I mentioned in the book where subjects were asked to make 10 golf putts and half of them were given a, uh, were told that their golf ball was a lucky golf ball. And they actually made about 35% more successful putts. Um, so mm. just feeling lucky gave them uh, the sense of control and uh, self-efficacy, which then translated into actual performance. Um, so that's the other upside, the, the sense of control. But there's also a, um, a downside to that, um, which is if you, you can feel too much control. So let's say uh, you think that, oh, for this 
exam or this presentation coming up. I just need this, uh, you know, lucky item, this uh, like rabbit's foot or something. Um, if you rely too much on that, then you're not going to study and you're not not going to prepare. Um, or you might think that with your lucky shirt on, you can take unreasonable risks and and uh, you know make all kinds of crazy decisions and think that your luck will will carry you through. Right. Um, so that's a sort of everyday kind of. You know, you have to balance that upside and downside. Definitely. I mean, I, this is actually a very fascinating subtopic to me because uh, in psychology, there's a concept called uh, locus of control, something mm. I mentioned in the past on this channel, I think, uh, where, I mean, essentially it's just you sort of measure the degree to which people experience that they have control over the outcomes in their life, over their happiness and success, essentially. And there's a clear correlation between actual success and this feeling of being in control over your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even uh, sort of, I wrote sort of an entrepreneurial book two years ago. I mean, it was very, my main objective was to dismantle, I guess what you could call magical beliefs in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of, Tony Robbins, Oprah Winfrey, all these people, they, they promote these slogans and mm. the buzzwords. It sounds really good, but when you, when you actually examine it, there's absolutely no reason in some, mm. some cases, counter reason of evidence that go, that go against what they're preaching, preaching, quote unquote, of course. But, but, the, but I actually ended up finding myself advocating that in this one specific area of life if you want to increase your your odds simply of being successful with a business or any endeavor in your life you may want to be just a, it could be um an advantage to be just a tiny bit delusional in terms of mm -hmm. self-control or yeah illusion of self-control yeah um yeah that's uh, one of the weird things about entrepreneurs they tend to be you know they might be more optimistic um, than other people and more risk-taking. Yeah. And if you look at the statistics of startups, most startups fail. Look at restaurants, most restaurants don't last five years. Um, but then if everyone realized those statistics, then we would have no restaurants and no startups. So it's good that some people do you know, have that kind of irrational exuberance or, or that risk-taking or that, that optimism. Um, at least for maybe not for themselves because most of the time they will fail, but it benefits the rest of us because some of them do succeed and we, we all read the rewards. Right, right, right. Um, right. But then you also have to, there's, you have to do the risk benefit analysis. So even if you do fail most of the time, when you do succeed, the payoff can be huge. So maybe even if you will probably fail, maybe it is still does make logical sense to, to make that leap. I think, I believe some studies have shown that people are unwilling to make certain types of bets, even though the odds are grossly in their favor of, mm. I mean, would you bet $50 for a 5% yeah. chance to win 10 grand? I mean, I yeah. mean you, you should logically accept that bet, right? But, yeah. but many people, most people, I think, don't do that. Yeah, I, I guess we could sort of transfer that logic to what you just said. Yeah, so that's um, it, loss aversion is what they call it in, in behavioral economics. Um, like uh, D Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky have done a lot of work on this that you're probably familiar with. Um, 
and, and it's part of their prospect theory. Um, so if you ask someone, okay, would you take this bet where I flip a coin, heads, you win a dollar, tails, you lose a dollar. Most people will say no. You have to sort of sweeten the deal, usually two to one. Heads, you win two dollars, tails, you lose a dollar. Um, because the loss registers in their mind so much more meaningfully. They, they're so much more averse to losing something than they are. Uh, they, they fear losing things more than they desire gaining, gaining things. Right. And, and now we're sort of entering uh, through the back way, I guess, in a sense, uh, an evolutionary perspective on this, because that can be compared to the, the rattling in the, in the bush or in the leaves, yeah. right? I, I mean, we, we don't really risk anything. I think you, you described this in your book as well, by, uh, by running away from, a, from an unknown sound. Yeah. We, don't, we don't lose anything by doing that. But we can lose everything by not doing it. Yeah, it's better to mistake a boulder for a bear than a bear for a boulder. <laughs> right, right. Or right. a stick for a snake than a snake for a stick. Right, um, right. I actually, actually, my wife and I went for a walk just a few weeks ago, and 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 we we mistook a a stick for a snake, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we're still alive. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, much better than the other way around. I mean, it's pretty poor anecdotal evidence. I am I'm aware of that. Yeah. Right. Okay, yeah, so. Um, oh, please, so just one please. more thing on that, that generally that the sort of, there's a phrase for that general idea, which is uh, error management um, or error management theory. Um, so the idea is if um, the mistake, if the mis one form of, of mistake is more costly than another form of mistake, you're going to be biased toward um, the less costly form of mistake. Um, so it's that like bear versus boulder or stick versus snake. Um, so in that sense, bias actually is completely rational because like at least bias in one direction because it prevents you from the very costly mistake of, of accidentally slipping. The, the way I conceptualize it is if, let's say you're on the roof of a building um, and there's you know, usually like a short wall around the edge of the roof. Um, if you're walking along that edge, you're going to lean to one side. You're going to lean toward like, if I tip over, I'm going to tip over onto the roof, not onto follow it all the way to the sidewalk. Right. So your, your beliefs are, it makes sense for your beliefs to be leaning, be leaning one way. That's a great metaphor. Actually, I've never heard, heard that before. So, so should we, in your opinion, should we teach kids in our schools about magical thinking? Yes, um, just to be aware of these types of, of, of how their mind works, basically. Um, because a lot of the things that, a lot of the basic principles that come up in superstition and religion and uh, super, supernatural beliefs and magical thinking, um, they underlie just all of our everyday thinking. Just the idea of, of cognitive biases, um, the idea of, of seeing patterns in the world, um, the idea of, of, anal of sort of metacognition and being able to analyze your own thinking and what works and what doesn't and how do I know something and what if this isn't true? Um, right. Like what kinds of information is, is, are reliable and what should I believe and what should I not believe? Um, so it's yeah. all, it comes in handy in whatever you're, you're doing. Right. I, I mean, I, I love that you mentioned pattern recognition because that's really one of the tricky ones, right? Because when you take an IQ test, that's essentially a test of your ability to recognize patterns. Yeah. But true patterns, 
or I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's one of those domains where there seems to be a very fine line between genius and madness in, right. in some sense. Yeah. So pattern finding it comes up in in learning, like when you're learning a, a language, for instance, you're you're understanding grammar, you're learning to piece together sounds or symbols on a page to define patterns and create meaning out of that, or just understanding what things in your environment are edible and not edible or who is friend and who is foe and what's safe and what's dangerous. That's all seeing patterns. And um, it's, you know, we've all learned, we've all evolved to learn those kinds of patterns all the way down to, to, uh, you know, bacteria, every species survives based on that. Um, And it can lead to also more high level things like creativity, um, sort of, piecing together different concepts or different ideas and seeing, Oh, there's a connection here. There's, you know, you yeah. have some new invention or some new symphony or something like that. Right. Um, but it can also get us into trouble. Um, so one of the more benign things is just seeing faces in clouds and you quickly understand, okay, that's not an actual face, even though I can see it there. Um, but you can also, uh, it can lead to conspiracy theories like, oh, this person said something and then this thing happened. Maybe there's a connection there. Maybe that person is involved with this other thing. Um, or this, this was a weird coincidence. Maybe it's a symbol from the universe or a sign from God that I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z because I noticed the, the pattern and I'm reading, you know, I can spot the, the, the sign right. there. Um, so these, the, this sort of pattern recognition, it's why, we've, you know, why we're here. Uh, it's how we learn anything. It's how we understand the world. And it's not just a, a jumble of, of random things, but it can also lead to these sorts of, um, you know, these, you know, sometimes crazy thoughts. Like schizophrenia right, right. is kind of like very, you know, scattered brain connecting everything, reading meaning into everything. Right. I mean, I mean, I guess the textbook example, quote unquote, is the um, a Beautiful Mind, that movie. I don't know. What's his name? Scott Nash? Uh, Nash. Uh, maybe not Scott, John but Nash. Nash. Yeah, John Nash. I think sounds right. Yeah. But right, but where he's—I mean, his ability to recognize these—he's cognitively superior, right? But but he takes yeah. it too far. He can't—he yeah. can't tell where the line, where to draw the line, essentially. Yeah. So but, the things that make us smart can also make us stupid and or insane. Right. Right. I mean, one of the major of uh, returning to this idea of, of, of teaching our kids, of essentially teaching everybody about this, well, I think one of the major challenges for me personally, but I'm sure you can recognize this, is this quickly turns into a conflict with people who are religious. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. I have, I have friends that are religious obviously as most people who live in the u.s do um and i don't want to just burn the bridge you know and i also want to avoid the backfire effect when engaging in dialogue but it's it's i mean it's actually really tricky do you have any pointers how to go about that or how to not go about it maybe um i've never succeeded in changing anyone's religious beliefs that i know of Really? Um, okay. I guess maybe maybe I've encouraged some people to ask some questions, but I can't think of any clear example where someone was like, "Oh yes, Jesus is my savior. God exists, and I pray to this creature that uh, this entity that 
understands me and responds to me. And then I have a conversation and then the person is like, oh, you're right. Yeah, I just, just I don't know what I was thinking. Like that just never happens. Um, <laughs> Rarely. So, yeah. um, so I think don't go into con these conversations expecting to change people's minds, um, especially not with logic because a lot of these beliefs are not based on logic and reasoning. It's, it's, it's very emotional. People build their whole philosophies and their whole um, ways of life and their whole meaning, ways of life and their whole meaning systems um, on these, these ways of thinking. Um, right. Are uh, you familiar with uh, street epistemology by any chance? Street epistemology. Mm, you should no. definitely check that out. I interviewed a guy called Anthony Magnabosco who's been doing it for five, six years. But it's it's essentially it's a theoretical framework based on Socratic questioning, um, created by Peter Bogosian. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But it's it's really it's 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 a technique for having these difficult conversations with mm. people, and you. But and that's one of the core tenets: is never give people facts that contradict their pre-held beliefs, because it just doesn't work. Simply mm. asking questions is usually, you know, I like to do that. Just like, oh yeah. well, why do you why do you think this, or what would happen if, if this happened? Like, what would what would change your mind about this? Right. Um, and not in an accusative sort of way. Like, why do you think that? But just sort of approaching it with curiosity as if you're just, you're like an alien and you're trying to understand how these weird creatures called humans think about things. Right, right. So uh, I'm, I'm curious as to, because you're, you're more like a, a technology uh, journalist. Uh, I mean, I mean you, you have a wide variety of interests, I'm, I'm judging from your resume. Um, but what motivated you to write this book? So um, let's see. So the last few years I focused on technology. Um, but before that, I was more focused on, on psychology. Um, so my undergraduate degree was in cognitive neuroscience. And then after that, I worked in a lab for a couple of years doing, doing brain scans um, and then got a, a master's degree in science writing. Um, and then I covered physics and astronomy and things like that. Um, and then psychology for a bunch of years, um, sort of closely tied to my, you know, my college studied studies um, with some you know, technology mixed in there. And then in the last three years or so, I've shifted more towards focusing on technology because of the, the AI boom. Um, right. So I've been getting really into that. But generally, I'm, understand, I'm interested in understanding uh, cognition in people and machines. So thinking, you know, wherever it takes place, whether it's in, in a human, whether it's in software, AI, um, animals. Um, so I think thinking is just the most crazy thing. Um, consciousness in particular. In, in college, I was really into trying to understand consciousness, which seems like if there is one magical thing in the world, it's consciousness. Because you just have no idea how, um, like why it exists. Um, even if you understand everything about the brain, that's not going to explain why you also have, the brain also has a sense of awareness on top of how it functions. Right. I'm, I mean, you, you can perceive it as an artifact of the way we're structured biologically, but it's, it's, it's still an oddity, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At the very least. Okay. I, okay. So 
I want to. I would love to get your perspective on this. I I recently uh, interviewed uh, Gordon Gallup, who is the, you know, who, who is. I take it from your nodding, the but <laughs> he, he invented the, the mirror test, the self recognition test. We're talking about how widespread self awareness is in chimpanzees. Mm. So it turns out in the wild, I mean, obviously it's a little hard to do these measurements, but I thought all chimpanzees were able to recognize themselves in the mirror after a, a, a certain learning period, you know, getting used to the mirror, understanding what it is. But it mm. turns out only, these are rough numbers, about 60% of chimpanzees mm. in the wild are able to recognize themselves in the mirror. Interesting. And, and he believes that they're actually in the process of losing disability and there's mm. also some strong evidence that gorillas so none of the gorillas that are alive today that have been tested exhibit this ability to recognize themselves in the mirror but there mm. have been two this, i think this about 50 years ago that clearly passed this test so it's also i mean it's a speculation but it, but it's not completely un, ungrounded or unfounded they may have been self-aware and lost the capacity altogether mm. now these i've never even thought about this before but when i started thinking about it i started asking some questions about humans as well so and now i, I was actually just going to ask you do you have any idea of whether <laughs> you're, you're, you're well, let me hear your thoughts on it well that's weird because i can no longer recognize myself in the mirror um no, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, that's okay. You had me for a second there. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. Are there individual animals that can no longer recognize themselves, or is it over the course of time the species? I was talking. Yeah, I was talking about the species over the course of time. Okay. I mean, a, a group of, so ch chimpanzees, uh, the ones that do develop this capacity, they develop it late in their life, and they lose it early as well. So it's actually like a window. It's only like two thirds of their entire lifespan. They have it. But I was talking statistically. I mean, I mean, because you can pass it on, uh -huh. or someone else, or, or something else can be passed on, right? And that's really the only question that determines whether or this ability will be propagated over time. Yeah. Well, so if the change, if there's been a trend within a species over the right. course of a few decades. That's too fast for evolution. So there must be, so if this trend is real and it's not a statistical anomaly, um, it would have to be some sort of cultural or environmental uh, influence within the chimpanzee community um, or within the gorilla community. I, I, I mean, not necessarily, I see, where, I see your point with that, of course, but, but I think there, I could imagine a scenario where, let's say we have a, um, a group of chimpanzees and, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe I actually do agree with you here. So something happens, uh, maybe some sort of pressure, but it could be humans, human intervention. And for some reasons, the ones that have these intellectual capacities that are sort of reminds a little bit of ours, self-awareness, essentially, they could do worse because they also have theory of mind and the other ones don't, or at least a very primitive sense of a type of theory of mind. So we could imagine a scenario where all the ones that are smart, quote unquote, are just eradicated for some reason. That could actually select for hmm. them not having this, in theory, in one generation. Right. Like even if you just have one set population, 
if some of them, let's say half of them can recognize themselves in the mirrors and then most of those are killed for some reason. Right. I mean, or, or captured by the researchers yeah. wanting, right. that want to yeah, study yeah. it, right? <laughs> that reduces the ratio within the remaining population. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, but, I, just, but, but, I don't know enough about Right. Yeah. Right. But okay. But but uh, here's the tie I was hoping to make to your book, uh-huh. your work on magical thinking. The, the, these thoughts make me just ask this question, or or rather, I I, I used to see human evolution as something. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about cognitive, uh, psychological states, probably. Uh, I mean, you know, we used to live in this really hard times. Uh, the Black Plague, medieval, uh, <laughs> everybody was crazy or crazy more or less, according to modern standards. Then we had the Enlightenment, and, but, but just this constant improvement, essentially. But now I, I feel with this speculation, I'm, I can't help thinking that humans could very well lose their capacity to similar to a similar extent, maybe in other domains, but mm-hmm. we could, this is just a theoretical speculation, we could forget what we know about magical thinking. Uh, I don't think selection pressure favors an informed population in that mm, regard. I think it will always be reinvented. Um, so the forms of magical thinking will will change um, the particular beliefs in this God or that God or, you know, this mm. uh, like Jesus versus, you know, some other mystical figure. Um, and we see that just in the last, you know, we can we can see that happening in the U.S., for instance, the the number of people who say that they are part of an organized religion um, has been going down. But the number of people who are sort of self-described atheists and believe in nothing has not gone up. So that means that the people who are leaving organized religions, they're just inventing their own thing. They're combining Eastern traditions with like made up things with new age mysticism, with, you know, various kinds of spiritual beliefs. Um, And so I, I do I mean, it makes sense to, to think that there are trends in terms of the form that magical thinking takes, but I don't think that we will ever lose the capacity or the, the tendency to, um, to read, to attribute, uh, in, for instance, intentionality to natural events, um, which is sort of a core thing, the, the sort of sense that things happen for a reason or this was meant to be. Meant to be. Um, seeing some random or natural event and thinking that this was caused by uh, a purpose, whether it was a witchcraft or a God or a universe that cares or knows about us. Um, just because part of a core part of humanity is uh, our social nature. Um, we've evolved yeah. to live in societies and interact with each other. And part of error management theory is that um, it's, it's, we have a, a bias toward seeing things as intentional because if something happens, then you're, you, you quickly ask, okay, why did this happen? Who caused this? Uh, because if you can find a, a human source or an intentional source, then you can think about how to prevent it from happening again or how to 
make it happen more or how to sort of uh, manipulate this process somehow. Um, so I think that bias will always be there. And so we will always leap to thinking, why did this happen? Not just what is the physical cause of this happening, but like what is the deeper intention behind this event happening? Um, and so I think that will kind of emerge in different ways through, you know, mm. as long as we are around. Right. So you're saying it's, it's an innate human tendency, but the, it'll be expressed in different yeah. ways. Yeah. Well, then different types of gods or, or witches or, or magical powers or, or phenomena to explain things, but those will all be sort of, you know, some form of magical thinking. Right. So uh, has the general perception of magical thinking in a broad sense changed since you published your book? Or do we know anything about that? Or do you have any intuition? So the sort of general sense among people, um, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think around that time, maybe a few years before there was the, uh, the sort of four horsemen of the apocalypse, the, um, like Dan Dennett, Richard Dawkins, uh, Hitchens, Harris, Harris. Hitchens and Harris. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they were sort of not just atheists like I am, they were basically anti-theists like coming out with their, you know, fists swinging, like, Oh, if you believe in this stuff, you're an idiot. Um, and so there's sort of that raised the debate. And I think there was some backlash to that. Yeah. Um, and so for a few years, there was a lot of debate about, um, I guess magical thinking and superstition and, and, um, I don't think anyone, I don't think, I don't know if they succeeded in making people think more critically about these things. They may have succeeded in making people, it's, there may have been a backlash there. Yeah. Um, that's always a risk, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I tried to avoid that kind of backlash in my book and, and not call people stupid or crazy for these beliefs, yeah. but just sort of try to understand why these beliefs exist. Right. It, it, it was, I think it was, that was a smart move because if I compare my, just my emotions, essentially, uh, after having read the, the aforementioned book by David McCraney, which is called, uh, you're not so smart. I mean, yeah. it's really just, <laughs> it just, it's what it sounds like, but yours yeah. is more like understanding it. It's, it's, it's positive. Yeah. It's it brought us to where we are right now. I mean, I think that's a smart move. And it's also, comparable i guess to what malcolm gladwell did in blink mm, like talking about intuition right he makes it makes it he's sort of like serves it on on a, something that looks like a nice silver platter and you're like oh okay but then when you when once you reach chapter two in the book you're like ah okay it's not all good right but yeah i think it's a smart move because people don't want to hear negative stuff just on a yeah general level all right. Yeah. Any any closing thoughts on magical thinking? Yeah, I think it's just a, a, such a rich topic just to look at all the ways that uh, uh, that people think magically, even when they don't really realize that they are. Um, Do you have a good example of that? Yeah. So one of the stories that I tell in the book is about this uh, this case of um, there was a, a Red Sox fan living in New York City, and he was a construction worker. And he was asked to work on the, the construction of the new Yankee stadium. Um, and he wasn't a Yankees fan, so he said no. But then he had an idea. Um, he went to work one day on the job and he brought with him a Red Sox jersey. Um, and he buried it in the cement of the new stadium. 
Um, and he told some people about it and they thought it was really funny. And then maybe a year later, the, the Yankees learned about it. And at first they thought it was, a, they thought it was sort of a prank. And then the other construction workers were like, no, no, it's really in there. We saw him do it. Here's your <laughs> photos. Um, and then they took it seriously and they're like, oh my God, we have to get this out. Um, yeah. And they had this big ceremony where they, they found it and they jackhammered it out of several feet of concrete and had this, they raised it up in front of like the press, taking photos and things. And as it was this big sort of exorcism where it was just a shirt in several feet of concrete that had no physical effect on the stadium at all. And yet everyone was worked up about this. And it was like this big voodoo thing um, that people thought it would curse the team. And so you kind of, you know, in some, in some other context, you would say that, oh, that's sort of the natives going crazy. It's this tribalism. <laughs> it's like yeah. pre-modern kind of thing. But no, this is New York City. This is modern Western educated culture right. um, showing clear magical thinking. Um, and so it's, it's these things that make complete sense to, to us, like, oh, of course, you got to get it out of the stadium. You can't have a Red Sox jersey in the Yankee stadium. <laughs> um, it just makes sense. But then you think about it and you're like, well, why does it make sense? It's all this meaning that we build out of it. Um, it, it just shows the sort of rich storytelling nature of humans. Um, right. To our benefit and, and to our detriment. And at the end of the day, only a few steps away from a new cargo cult type yeah. situation, right? Yeah. yeah. That's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Stay tuned for another interview with Matt where we go into the future of AI. Thanks for listening to the MetaQuest podcast. Have a good one. Cheers.